Uh, we'll read from Jeremiah 29, 1 through 14. I may have to put my reading glasses on. And someone said, it looks like I have a hearing aid on. So bring it on. Here we go. All right. <laughs> Shorts jokes are coming out, all sorts of stuff already. So bring it on. Uh, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests. The prophets and to all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jehoiakim and the queen mother, the court officials, and the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the skilled workers and the artisans, had gone into exile from Jerusalem. He entrusted the letter to Elasa, son of Shephan, and to Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. It said, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promises, my promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and bring you back to the place from which I have carried you into exile. Uh, This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this moment. Thank you for this opportunity. It is a great privilege to um, study your word, to hear your word, to rest in who you are, and to share that. In fact, in those ways, it's such a delight. Um, But God, you know uh, my heart. I I didn't expect to be up here. And so this is the task for the morning. So Lord, pray that like the widow that placed those two coins in the offering basket, um, this is my and this is our offering to you. Like the lady who broke open that alabaster jar and the perfume was a sweet fragrance to you, Lord, If this so pleases you, we pray that you would bless this, anoint this time together, and Lord, you would speak to us all through your work of your Holy Spirit. In your Son's name we pray. Amen. All righty. It's a little strange to be up here, as as Ken was sharing. So um, we have uh, filled our summer with missionary speakers. And so we have one on Saturday. We have one on Sunday. So I encourage you to come on out there. Uh, Pastor Wilson, our interim teaching pastor, asked to be off in July and August for a lot of personal reasons, so we granted it. So we've been scrambling to fill the summer roster with the greatest speakers we can, hopefully missionaries, to make clear that we are a gospel community on missions, kind of our charter mission statement. And uh, lo and behold, this is the one Sunday there was no speaker, and so um, you have me, all right? Okay. So as we jumped in the text, well, there's a few other things. And so when I was praying and thinking about today, I was like, wow, what should I share My family already said, don't share anything about them. I'm like, okay, that's out of the picture. 
And uh, I thought maybe we'd just go back to the beginning, share a little bit about the verses we shared from the very, very start that was very moving for us. I feel like the Lord was saying, share about that. It's been 12, 13 years now. Uh, maybe there's probably a different rendition. Um, and uh, I actually asked Ken if we could just show a video that we saw. And he said, no. So here we are. And um, I'm hoping this would also be a continuation of the retreat, where we heard some great messages on brokenness and lament, brokenness and emotional health, choosing community and going deep and wide in that choosing of community. Okay? So I'm very nervous, but here we go. All right. Roman number one, the context. This text emanates from the context of 6th century B.C., the people of Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, have been taken captive to this beautiful but brutal city of Babylon. From what can be ascertained by research, life in Babylon was very much like current life in a major metropolitan city like New York, or perhaps the great city of Chicago where I was born and raised, moving later to the western suburbs. So try to form a picture as I share, so that as we put ourselves in this place of the text, we can see what these Israelites were feeling and seeing and what the Lord was saying to them then, what the Lord is saying to us now. Okay? In part of that context, we have to realize this was a great city of prominence. Contextual piece number one. There was great security. So imagine and try to picture this. Babylon was a walled-off city. Three rings of walls that were 40 feet tall. They had enormous structures at the city gates to mark its grandness, its power, its security. It also provided shade in that hot Mesopotamian desert. They had complex religious temples and jurisprudence system, multiple palaces and temples like the Temple of Marduk, the Ishtar Gates, and Stele, plural for Stella, enormous slabs of inscripted words, which the Hammurabi Code was written on those slabs. So let's try to picture this as you can, right? Commerce. In Hammurabi's day, the wealth of the city was measured by its production of barley and wool, the latter of which was woven into textiles for trade, which meant they had already developed a complex labor and land-owning system, the plowing of fields, canals, a water system, as they were right off the Euphrates. And so if I were to try to make and paint a picture for today, that probably meant they had some fancy clothes. Maybe in the current day and age, that would be Lulu Babylon, something like that, right? <laughs> they were barley experts, so that probably means they had great bread and beer. So I thought maybe for today's context, in this DuPage County, two Babylonian brothers, right? Fresh vegetables, dates, palms, etc. I try to think of another phrase. The Euphrates farm-to-table hummus. Can you see that logo on the package right there? And the Chicago folks love their meat, right? So it's probably like a lot of lamb and sheep meat all over the place, right? So five lamb guys? Is that too corny? Something like that? Can you see a t-shirt like that? Okay. This city had penthouse views because it was an internal city, again, walled off for security. Many people actually slept on the roof so they can catch a breeze off the river and relief from the desert heat. A lot of people actually cooked and slept on the roof. Can you picture that? Fancier roofs had walls for privacy and even grape arbors for food and relief from the sun. So it's a lot like the urban condos and apartments we see in major metropolitan cities. The best places are always on top, right? Catch a breeze, catch a sight, right? Et cetera, et cetera. Cool off a little bit. Watch the sunset, night sky after a long Babylonian day, right? They were, had a lot of art festivals. So again, to continue on my corny titles, maybe if you can try to picture a Lala Babalooza, something like that. As the city of Mesopotamia grew wealthy, there were more resources and free time for people to enjoy entertainment. They enjoyed music at festivals, 
fancy drums, lyres, flutes, and harps. They enjoyed sports as boxing and wrestling, as well as board games, and a chance um, they had these fancy dice uh, games as well. Children of the time would have toys to play with, jump ropes, tops. Art and poetry was such a big part of this city. Um, many had religious art themes, and they would have storytelling kind of uh, uh, sessions where they passed on stories of generations. It's an oral culture to pass down the history, and some of the more popular stories eventually being written down on clay tab- tablets or, or scribes. They had a complex military system, developed a complex system of separate military forces, much like we have now with the Army, Marines, and Navy. The use of chariots, and they actually built roads for quick strikes on those chariots. And they were inventive in cutting out city-states. In one case, they were very skilled in cutting off water sources. When they wanted to take over a city, they knew how to attack and cut it off from everything. And their neighboring country, which they were at war at, Assyria, they learned from each other, and they were constantly at war with each other and other nations in developing a complicated military system. So what are we talking about? Again, to paint that picture, we're talking about a city of great Babylonian pride. Maybe like a Babylonian strong t-shirt, a beer and barley tattoo, um, maybe a high school Babylonian cheap t-shirt, a rock band singing the wall, You probably had sports civil wars. Babylon North plays Babylon South High School. Or in the regionals, they're playing Assyrian Central. Something like that. Can you start to picture it? Much like Naperville, much like cities we live in. And when I drive to Chicago, the place where I was born, I just love driving to the city. When you're on 290, 88 to 290. Because when you drive there, you immediately meet that kind of agricultural thing, right? Complex system of money that's there. You see these tall buildings, And in a lot of American cities, they're usually built by water, right? Serves as sewage, transportation, defense, and military, amidst an area to farm. And in America, like a lot of areas, then the railroads come, the highways, now a digital tech freeway. And you see this beautiful architecture next to art, next to places of rest, those great condos with views of the city. I think of Millennium Park. Can you picture it? Everything is right there for you to view, to walk around and enjoy. That's what I see in Babylon. So Chicago Strong, place of my birth. You can read them in two books of poetry I have, Night Sessions and A Half-Life. If you buy one, maybe I'll get a royalty more of 50 cents this year. Okay, let's go for 60 cents. Okay. So I'm trying to just paint a picture, and can you start to see it, especially in this text when, of all things, um, these Israelites are having to live in a city of their mortal enemies. And it's such a bursting, bustling Babylonian life. What do you think, and how do you think they felt? As we read through the text, everyone in that era clearly recognized what was going on as Babylon had sacked Judah, the southern kingdom. It had sacked its beloved country, it sacked its temples, and via what we would now call colonization, brought a good number of people over into Babylon, its capital city, as laborers. So can you imagine the growing feeling that they might have that we now live in this city of our captors? So to get a letter from Jeremiah to them as exiles in Babylon will probably be very comforting, especially verses 1 through 6, if you want to look through your Bible or phone app. It would make all the sense in the world because in the arc of their cultural history, they would all be thinking about, the prophets and priests would be echoing the three covenants between them and the Lord, the principle beneath them, and just as a reminder of the covenants, there's that age-old Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, the promise of land to him and generations to come, the promise of many descendants and generations to come, the promise of continued blessings from the Lord, the Lord speaking to Abraham, making a covenant there, 
the Mosaic Covenant made between Israel and God at Mount Sinai via Moses after the growing contentions after leaving Egypt with the writing of the Ten Commandments, I personally call it the Gospel of the Old Testament, which I'll explain later. One, the eternal purpose to reveal God's spiritual and moral principle as a way of life for his people. Two, a historical and temporary purpose, a covenant agreement to Israel and God as guidelines, principles, and laws to run Israel's theocracy. You have the Abrahamic covenant, the, David, the Mosaic covenant. Then you have the Davidic covenant, made between God and King David through the prophet Nathan. In 2 Samuel 7, reassurance of the promised land. Descendants of David will sit on the throne of Israel. David's throne and kingdom will be established forever. Undergirding these is also the growing understanding of the retribution principle. The principle in its most basic form maintains that the righteous will prosper and the wicked will suffer. This basically surrounds faithfulness to the adherence of Deuteronomic law, particularly chapter 28, especially the Ten Ten Commandments at the heart of it. So can you begin to see the picture physically of what's going on as they enter into the city and live there? A beautiful life, beautiful life in Babylon. And what can you see what they're seeing in verses 1 through 6? There's trouble lurking. We, Judea and Israelites, have indeed been unfaithful. Trouble has emanated as we've now conquered and now in a foreign city. A brutal life in Babylon, though a beautiful life. But the old days would say if we repent and amend our ways in 4 through 6, Ark of the Old Testament will begin to flourish again, and the we in this text being the Jain Israelites, much like North South Korea, still Koreans, all Israelites, in this case the southern country, Judah. And that should speak to us at this moment, because similar to us as Christians, no matter what we do, it is through the cross. It is not legalism that our lives are forgiven, blessed, and the empowerment of challenges we face daily. It is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and the Holy Spirit that now guides and empowers us the word to live by, and provides a moral and ethical framework for our lives. Okay? But it's not easy. Second major point, the struggle. A new covenant through an old paradigm. Again, if we can picture what's going on with these Judean Israelites being in Babylon, at the heart of their, okay, and again, what we will call now their colonizing captors, what must they be feeling? I try to put myself in their shoes, right? If I were them, I would feel extreme hatred. I hate these people. They have conquered me. They have taken everything that is sacred to me, everything in disruption. I didn't look or ask for this. Maybe fear and mystery. Like, what's next? How is this going to work? Because we are not supposed to be here and in this situation right now, right? Why, Lord? I don't get it. Please help me understand. And maybe, and I think more prevalently as we look at these verses, probably a gnawing sense of doom for their kids. It was common for conquering nations to have conquered people brought into their capital city or main city and lose their spiritual identity, which is also their entire ethnic, national, and spiritual identity. Why? After a few generations of bringing these people into Babylon, having them live there, be educated there, speak the language, eat the food, they would be assimilated and lose their identity as a distinct people, which they have cherished for such a long time. Come on in. Take the values. Eventually be proud Babylonians as they are assimilated as close they can be as for an Israelite of that generation or generations to come. And eventually, in other words, eventually they may not care so much, us, our kids, because they've been assimilated. The parents could see that then and there for them and their kids. And it's probably this scary gnawing sensation that they all are feeling. 
So more than likely as a reaction to that, they all felt another response, security in their communal cultural norms. Hey, be faithful, we'll be good, and we'll flourish as an ethnic race people, and Babylon will crumble, right? Because we are the chosen ones of Yahweh. Hasn't that happened time and time again in the Old Testament? So calamity, okay. Unfaithful, okay. Be faithful, okay. We'll be here, everything will crumble and disappear. That's probably what they're reading in verses 1 through 6. 1 through 5, right? And 1 through 6. And then you read verse 7, which should have been utter shock to them. Also, hey, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Everything would then be on breaks right now. 1 through 6, got it. Everything around me will crumble because we're the chosen ones. But wait a minute. You want me to seek the peace and prosperity to this city which has conquered us and taken all things that are sacred to us into your country? No way. No way. No way. This defiles everything that I've worked, everything that we've lived out, everything that was told to me narratively by my parents, my grandparents, and my forebears. And so now their task as exiles is how to work out our relationship in this new place, living among people whose values are vastly different than their own, but also without assimilating their own distinct spiritual principles and values. That's the key here. And how can this be done? So I went back and looked at that old video from Tim Keller. He organized it in this way. The Babylonian way. Be moved into the city and lose your spiritual identity. The way of Hananiah and false prophets alluded to in verses uh, 8 and 9. Don't move into the city and keep your spiritual identity or at least stay right outside of the city or come on home back to Jerusalem. And then there's a third way, the God way, to which Jeremiah is preaching. The Lord is saying to Jeremiah and to his people, move into the city and keep your spiritual identity. In fact, God calls you, God calls them, to move and serve the city out of one's own distinct spiritual identity and maintain that spiritual identity and be a blessing to this city. This seems new for the people then, and it is because clearly it is pointing to a new fulfillment of these three old covenants, and yet it's exactly the opposite. It seems so countercultural, counterintuitive, and yet this also fulfills an age-old principle for them, what I would call the paradigmatic approach. Israel was to be a paradigm of how these chosen people and these Babylonians were to live. In that covenant theology or retribution principle, retribution principle, the law and its stipulation were not an onerous burden, but a delightful gift from God. This is why I call it the gospel of the Old Testament. The Lord was with them and he spoke to them. This suggests that the common understanding of the law as a heavily legalistic burden should be reconsidered, as Torah was given to the people of Israel after they had been delivered from Egypt, a relationship that exists between Yahweh and the people of Israel. Israel was envisioned as being a kingdom of priests, the people from whom it would act as mediator for the Gentiles. In other words, Israel were to serve as a mediator for the rest of humanity. The law established the parameters within which righteous can be lived out. A paradigmatic approach to law helps us recover the ethical instruction of the narrative text as well as the legal material of the Pentateuch. It also recognizes the unique calling Israel had to be a nation of priests ministering to a watching world. So what's happening in this moment in verse 7 should have also rung true to them because it's an age-old mission to them. 
but it seems so counterculture at that moment because that's how far they have strayed from the Lord. They had a clear mission, a clear relationship with the Lord as a priesthood of believers, but because their religion or religious practices became so detached from the core of the relationship with the Lord in the midst of their own sin, idolatry of Baal, ancient Near East practices, and anger towards their captors, perhaps rightfully so, they lost their way. And now what, should have, what sounded normal sounded completely foreign. It would only get worse, as we see in verse 7. God wants me to bless my neighbor, my mortal enemy. This is some weird business, right? This is very countercultural. So could I ask you this morning some honest questions before we, quote-unquote, land the plane, as Pastor Wilson always says, to borrow from him? And so we'll kind of descend now, right? This is the intercom warning. So I know it's kind of dry and I was reading a lot. Also, because I'm really nervous, I had to type everything down to make sure I don't flub, all right? Is this not a similar predicament that we have now as they did then? We know now Jesus is the fulfillment of these covenants and law. Romans 8, 4, other verses. Jesus has commanded us to love him with all our heart, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, then Luke 10, Matthew 22, Mark 12. The word also says that we are called to be a royal priesthood, No. Old Testament, we talked about the Jeremiah, 1 Peter 2.9. We are God's ambassadors to the world, 2 Corinthians 5, among other verses. Could it possibly be similar to the Judeans, though God has given us all Christians, the church universal, and this local church, a clear mission, both through the life of Jesus and the word, in a church in particular, again, that gospel community and mission, RCC, is it possible we fall and pray to our own religious traditions and norms as an end goal of itself. And we're caught in this cycle of religious behavior. Gotta be there on Sunday service. That's the norm. Gotta be there especially for our kids. Youth groups, uh, C groups, community groups. Then in keeping in mind the greater purpose of all of this, deepening our relationship with the Lord through these habits and bringing other people into that deep relationship with the Lord. That's what Dr. Steve preached about, didn't he? And not the other way around. Or perhaps similar to the Judeans, are we called Israelites? Are we caught in the emotions of the moment? And maybe even rightfully so. So much power, so much injustice, so much critique we can offer that perhaps we can kind of just start swimming in those waters and never come out of it. Or like what we shared, have we perhaps somehow assimilated to the world around us, so much so that it has become a normative conflation of the two? The world's way is God's way. And I just thought for a few minutes, a few examples. Can anyone find for me in Scripture that the American dream is a God-ordained dream? That anyone from anywhere can rise to the top and should arise to the top of the socioeconomic ladder? Is that in Scripture anywhere? A lot of times Christians have conflated the two. God's words actually says the opposite. In Matthew 5 it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is a kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Meaning every day we have breath in our lungs, is given to us from the Lord. We need to be thankful and purposeful. And as you do so and live a Christian, faithful Christian life, it's rough. You'll be poor in spirit, meek, hunger and thirst for justice, And somehow through the words of even Jeremiah, as you pour your heart out to the Lord, you'll be blessed through it. And ironically, if anyone has had a spell in life or is filled with a life of poverty, injustice, and more, 
It's odd. It seems counterintuitive in the world we live in. You'll have this incredible sensitivity to God's hand on your life and others in the same plight. It's easy to share what little you have when everyone is doing the same. It's hard when life, for you and others around you, is about accumulation as an end goal in itself. I thought of two other quick examples. Where in Scripture does it say the suburban life is the most blessed life? I think it's easy to think this way because these were once native lands, then owned farmlands, then money back lands to separate us from urban uh, areas filled with ills, quote-unquote. You can look at documents for that. We are now living in cultivated cities of comfort. You have schools, hospitals, shopping, and more, and we begin to normalize this as God's way. But please know, particularly in the New Testament, there's not a word about land acquisition. It's for a different kingdom that we live for. And I thought of just another quick, I think, largely American Western society kind of a way of thinking. And I'm still not used to this headset. Is the blessed life the formally educated life? For example, a faithful Christian must get undergrad and grad degrees, right? If that were the case, I must be really blessed, as Ken showed up on the slides, right? But after all these degrees, I once got a royalty check for 35 cents, another for 50. And Sandy said to me, what's the point? Postage costs more, right? Okay. If that were the case, the formerly educated are really blessed. And those with technical training, plumbers, electricians, uh, mechanics, they must not be as good or blessed, right? But that is not God's way. God uses all of us and gives us all creative, intellectual, and analytic tools and abilities. And we have to all, wherever in life, understand and hone God's design in us and in turn help others to do the same with neither many degrees or none at all. To him or her has been given much, much is expected. These are just a few examples of justified religious constructions of assimilation since that's the way the world is. But it always seems like God must bless through these ways. And that's what's happening verses 1 through 6. This must be the way. And God says something very, very different in verse 7. But he already told them this a long time ago. In any of these scenarios, we are then missing this clear, vital, and central message of shalom, of peace, hope, forgiveness, of flourishing that we have received. And to likewise leave the imprint of God's character in the communities we live, study, work, and serve. That was there, and that is our conundrum for this day. And so as we're descending, and we'll land the plane in just a moment, I would ask, how have we understood, fulfilled, and lived out the mission of the church and this church? Again, RCC, you can look on the website, Gospel Community on Mission. Through intentional relationships, wherever God has placed you and we can cultivate, to bring people and leave people in a fuller relationship with the Heavenly Father, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, and the empowering work of the Holy Spirit as we know the relentless pursuit of God in our lives and people reaching out to us and more. There is a reason we started in the home. It wasn't some crazy guy's idea. In the heart of downtown, that's me, by the way, right, my house, DuPage Children's Museum and now Washington Junior High, there's a reason we call our groups of community, community groups, even the terminology, okay, even at a moment in church when it seemed impossible, too busy, okay, even the same for this treat, it seemed about an impossible task to pull off, but we need to gather together. We need to equip ourselves, and we then need to go to our communities and share this shalom message out to the rest of the world. What is the Lord saying to us as a church in this crazy six months, which includes today, 
Because I don't know how I'm up here. <laughs> Especially regarding the Israelites' own life-changing moment in this chapter, in this verse, in this letter they received from Jeremiah, where everything had been disrupted, and yet this was God's message to them. Do we cling to certain patterns that may be normative to us, claiming it in the name of the Lord, that may or may not be God's ways? If we pause for a moment, what is the Lord saying to you at this moment and to us as a church in this season? That's the reason why I thought maybe we need to go back to Jeremiah 29, this verse in this passage that when we're prepping for a church plant, we're like, yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. Third, the action and exhortation. First, we're trying to land the plane here, and then I'll fully land it on the runway, right? So we're climbing on down. Sounds so much better when Dr. Wilson says it, right? Okay. <laughs> so dramatic when he says it and everything. First, we are to know that this calamity, or our calamity, that we are enduring, is under the sovereign hand of God. Verse 4, I carried into exile from Jerusalem and Babylon. God allowed this to happen because all by people's choices, so that they will, re, again, re-understand how much he loves them and is walking alongside them and wants to use them for something absolutely amazing. Probably nothing more amazing could be happening than these Israelites loving their conquering neighbors as much as they feel the love from the Lord. Second, in understanding the sovereign shalom they have from the Lord, they are not to hoard it to themselves. They need to incarnate it, make it become flesh, this shalom into the place they live, even if they're mortal enemy. Third, they are to tune out false prophets in 8 and 9. They are to know God's word, reflect on it, so they can also filter certain things out and live faithfully by it. I'd also add as a corollary, please, 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 church folks, RCC, brothers and sisters, please, 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 similar to what we're saying in 8 and 9, avoid the temptation of being a false prophet or teacher, of memorizing one verse or one word and using it out of context. Because one will never fully understand the right message nor portray the right one. These false prophets were saying, stay away from Babylon. Stay on the outskirts. Come back home to Jerusalem, right? Don't listen to Jeremiah, right? Okay. They should have known better. And we see this everywhere with this text, especially with verse 11, because we'll pluck verse 11 out, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you and give you a future, right? Because we'll use that for a car, we'll use it for a job, we'll use that to date or marry our hottest boyfriend or girlfriend, which will one become a spouse. And if you disagree with that I or me statement about the West, I'll quote even the most famous Western philosophers, which maybe you've also seen on a bumper sticker, I think, therefore I am, Rene Descartes, right? Existence is justified by my ability to think. It's all about me. This is false teaching. God imparts meaning, purpose, and existence. We have meaning, purpose, and existence, and an exciting one because of the Lord. Look up Psalm 1 through 9 if you have any reason to doubt me. Please, please, please don't listen to the false prophets or be one or give false application one word or verse out of context. Because that would throw the folks then and the folks now totally out of whack then, right? And it's so easy to do that. That was our way, right? God's saying, no, be reminded, right? You are a priesthood of believers. Fourth, like what we said at the retreat, our faith, our word of God, our God, does not tell us to squelch our feelings. It's counterintuitive, right? 
Rather, in verses 11, as they lament, mourn, and complain aloud in silence to each other, I don't like this. I don't understand. This seems screwed up. It just doesn't sit well with me. How am I to bless these people that have conquered us, right? No way. Well, then verse 11 makes a lot more sense then, doesn't it? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope in a future. Then they start to really understand and lean on the Lord. God has something in store for me, but God has in store something for my neighbors. I am now fulfilling uh, my purpose and design before the Lord. And as you do all these things, you'll understand how rough it is, how uncomfortable it is, how countercultural it is, and yet how it emanates from a biblical pattern, and it won't be easy. And you and your family may be a funneling point to receiving and channeling God's character, empowerment, and relationship with a non-believing world, even perhaps with people that hate you or you hate them. To bless your enemy, that you too will be blessed. How? As we just talked about, it may be so hard you will have to seek me with all your heart. And what you discover is that in time, you'll be back in the kingdom, not in the physical land of Jerusalem, but this kingdom of the Lord. And that kingdom is a different one. It's with me, your Messiah, even in the midst of the heart of Babylon. So in the words of Jeremiah, in the title of this message of Jeremiah, seek the shalom of the city. Seek, pray, understand, wrestle with the Lord. Be and do, not as a checklist, boom, 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 but as an interwoven process. It's continual. And as people, this city will be blessed, and you too will be blessed. Shalom is not just the absence of of war. It's about people flourishing under the Lord. We will, we are blessed by the Lord, right, in our relationship with Christ. We share that with other people. You will come to the Lord over and over again and gain great wisdom, discernment, strength, and grace. All right, now we're going to wrap up the land of the plane. Keller states in the charter text or sermon of our church um, that Ken and I, again, we listened to at the very start, okay, before we started up the church. In this city, people appear spiritually hopeless, no religion, but kinder, deeper, and wiser than you. Many of the poor are open to the gospel than even you are. You'll come to realize that you need the city to spiritually grow, maybe even more than the city actually needs you. And here's the famous Keller quote in that video and in this passage. Are you living for the city or are you just using it for fun and career advancement? Are you praying for the city? Are you rooting for it? Do you have the same attitude that God wanted the exiles to have towards Babylon to seek the peace and prosperity to which I have carried you? Pray to the Lord for it. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. And now as we're landing the plane, okay, I fly to Midway a lot, so you choose your airport, right? The RCC version. Okay. One, are you being used by the Lord for the city or merely using it for your own soul or family's benefit? Okay. And to be clear, use the resources. Call the police if crime happens. Call the fire department if you see a fire. Please, please do that. But give back. Leave the imprint of Christ as you do so. A small gift, donation, word of appreciation, prayer, respect, and more. So much so, so in the immortal words of Ken Ha, I listen to everything this brother shares. He once said in a meeting, as we're reading another Keller book way back in the start, if RCC ceases to exist, will the city miss us? In other words, Naperville, any city you live in, is Naperville a better and more godly place because of our faithful living? 
I thought of another example. There's another church that we knew of. They had this great vision of making a world mission center. And when they finally applied for a permit, the city replied, no. And when they asked, why? We bought all the property around us. Why no? The city's response to them is, you've never done anything for us. Why should we do something for you? And when I heard that, at the same time, the Jeremiah 29 thing, I'm like, whoa. Wow. All right. Word of God makes sense. Two, are you being grown by the Lord in your serving of the church, or are you merely using the church for your own soul or family's benefit? This is a hard one, but I see that commonly at the church, right? Drop off the kids. Hey, it's the church's job to raise them spiritually. No. Biblically, no. The church is to equip you and your family to live godly lives. That is what we are doing together. Okay? The parents are the pastors of their families. And the pastors of the church are there to equip you to do this well. Okay? So please, please, bring your kids. Don't mishear me. But it's so we can all do this together, equipping you to do so. God will equip you as you commit to it. God will equip us as we commit to it as a church. We walk alongside you. We walk alongside each other as we do this together as a community church. To continue the retreat message, and under this kind of principle, uh, Dr. Steve Lee quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Every human dream from uh, life together that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. Those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the Christian community itself becomes destroyers of that Christian community, even though their intentions may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Christian brotherhood, sisterhood is not an ideal which we must realize. It's rather reality created by God in Christ in which we participate. So again, please don't misunderstand me. It's okay to share your emotions, thought, and criticism. But at a certain point, perhaps one's human dream for this church or this community is so strong, it may be a real stumbling block for Christ-centered community building. And I'd ask you to consider that. Maybe there's help that one needs outside of what the church context is so that when we gather together, um, we can make sense of all these things together. But it's a bit unusual, as I've been in church life now since I came to believe in Christ as a first-year student uh, in the University of Illinois. Correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of people have emotions and pains in life, and it comes out a lot of times through the criticism of the church. Right? It just happens so often. And the thing is, you may actually be 100% right, but then think about where the center of that is. Is it the self, or is the Holy Spirit and the body of Christ? Both are fallen and resurrected Savior, okay? but also this body of Christ. This is a body of believers as well. Okay. Okay. Should that not be the center, you, but also a lot of other brothers and sisters at that center. Third, are you growing in a fuller understanding of the grace of Christ on a regular basis? And to further that point, is this a costly grace? Another Dietrich Bonhoeffer book, Cost of Discipleship. Is this a costly grace or a cheap grace? According to Bonhoeffer, pastor and theologian, cheap grace is the grace that we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. In other words, in your understanding of the relentless pursuit of God's grace to you, that nothing can separate you from the Lord, 
But you do know that it came at a cost, right? That is called the cross. We are called to carry it. Not legalism as in being extreme and doing fancy things and have everyone report that, right? I must merit more favor. But a knowledge that this grace that we receive came at a cost, the cross of Christ then and now for us all to carry with God's grace. So as we live out God's grace, is it a cheap one or is it a costly one? Does it make a difference in your life and the lives of other people? Or is it fuel to do anything you want at all times, anywhere, anytime, anything? And now we're trying to really land the plane with the last few illustrations. I thought of this one example, even right after I became a Christian. So I know I joked about this retreat, but I'll say this again. Uh, I used to be a good athlete. I know it's hard to tell now. And then I always wait for someone to say, no, 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 you still look like a great athlete, right? So I'll just wait. <laughs> Thank you. And right after I came to Christ, I was playing basketball, what we then called Wimpy, the smaller Impy gym down at the University of Illinois. They have all these other fancier names now, right? I just can't get it straight. Uh, over by Allen Hall, right? And boy, this one brother, he was just pounding me with his elbows all day, or all, yeah, all afternoon. I had a long game, game after game. And I remember the last one was a blow to the face. And I remember right when that happened, everybody in the gym stopped to watch, right? And they wanted to see what I would do. And this one, I was in good shape. Mom, I wanted to beat this guy down to the ground, right? Because then I could. Now I'm like, ah, too much energy. I'm going to get hurt, right? No, thank you, right? I've become famous for also taking naps in unusual places, right? Okay, that's what happens when you get older, right? Okay. But even then, I could hear the voice of the Lord saying, turn the other cheek. I didn't quite understand it, but turn the other cheek and trust in me. That's a poor example of costly grace. I didn't want to do it. I want to beat this guy. I think I could have. And lo and behold, 25 years later, this person that's new to our church says, I was there at the gym, and I saw the whole episode, right? Praise God for how you reacted. He's sitting somewhere over there, right? I was like, wow. And little did I know later that that guy that was trying to elbow me all over the place was actually a good friend's roommate, right? Go figure. I live a very strange life. Okay. Maybe two other examples or a few, and I'll, I'll try to wrap this up. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, which you quoted from, and I'll shorten this as well. Um, famous pastor and theologian, had a chance to flee from the Holocaust and the persecution of those that were critical of the Holocaust, especially as German pastors and theologians, because the church largely supported Hitler's um, regime. Bonhoeffer was famous in a radio message for saying, the Fuhrer is an idol of the Germany. And after that, he knew trouble was lurking, so did everyone else. They brought him to New York, and he went to Union Theological Seminary to teach there, and he started attending Asinian Baptist Church, a local black church in the area, and was so moved, much like we're saying in Jura 29, by their worship of the Lord and their acceptance of him as a white man, right, in that same era. In there, he started just rotating these ideas, and actually left, though he could have stayed of New York, he could have stayed in England, because he was this prized theologian and pastor, and went back to Germany. He confessed to Niebuhr, I must live through this difficult period of history with the people of Germany. This is my people. We face the terrible alternatives of either willing the defeat of our nation in order that civilization may survive, or willing the victor of our nation and thereby destroying civilization. I, now, I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice of security. I must go back. And he continued to preach the message that what they were doing as a church and as a people was wrong. He was then in prison and then executed. 
That's a dramatic example of costly grace. A dramatic example of someone who sought the shalom of the people around him. Was moved by people that would accept him, even allow him to teach Sunday school to their kids, right, at the Abyssinian church, folks. And might I also mention, we often use Bonhoeffer as an example. Praise God also for the Abyssinian church folks for welcoming him and engaging a Jeremiah 29-like spirit. They could have shunned him and said, we don't want you here. But in fact, they embraced him as a brother because he loved them. Um, I should wrap this up. Last example. I had two other ones. I'll start with this one. If we had time, and I had more time this week, I would uh, bring a picture of our dear sister, Linda Eden. Maybe a lot of you, because we're new, it's a different church now, right, than it was 12 years ago, right? To me, Linda Eden embodied this shalom story we're talking about Jeremiah in one, multiple ways. Number one, our pastor at the time, okay, he moved his family from the northern suburbs down here to the western suburbs. And who does that in Chicago area if you love Korean food, right? But he did. And in that, this lady next door who had lived a very broken life emotionally, all sorts of things in life, she had just come to a low point, was suddenly intrigued by this pastoral family that moved into the the house next door. And as they befriended her, she started to come to church. And I remember being at the welcoming table and meeting her. And I would always watch her and the pastor's wife engage in this debate like, I'm here because you didn't invite me. And the pastor was like, I did invite you. You know, you just didn't hear. And they would engage in this five-minute debate. It was like a sitcom every single time. But she came. She usually would sit right here and she would soak in all the messages, even telling the Brian, uh, Pastor Brian at the time, uh, hey, take your time, stop watching the clock. She would start rebuking us, <laughs> giving us things to think about. She even took the directory home to memorize everybody's names, including down to the kids. And then she fell from the stairwell of her home and then she died immediately after. And because I live a strange life, I was the only one around at the time. So I have to run to Byron and talk to the family. And then everyone collects together because it's a busy, I think, Fourth of July weekend, if I remember right, or some kind of busy weekend. And we all mourned. And we all lamented. But then there at the funeral service, at the wake, I should say, we had a chance to share. Some of you went up there and shared. And I can remember sitting next to the family, the Eden family, and them realizing the shock of what's going on here. Because Linda's best friends at the time were largely Asian Americans or people adjacent to this Asian American church. And let me clarify here. We're a community church initiated by Asian Americans. Okay? Just want to clarify that. We'll probably engage in a big debate, as we always do. Okay? Look on our website. And then they also realized, and they even shared about how blessed Linda was through this church. She came from a broken place to a place, no pun intended. No, I'm sorry, pun intended, right? But it's not a pun. She was restored, and she began living a really faithful life. She was blessed through the church. She was blessed by this family sharing the shalom with her. And can I tell you, how much were we blessed by Linda? She, to me, embodied what the church was meant to do. She's the one that when we had Fall Fest would give me a stack of newspapers saying, here are all the community newsletters you need to reach out to right now. She wanted to know everyone's lives and stories so much, as I mentioned, she quoted the directory, memorized it. She's the one that introduced some of us to a health clinic down in Bolingbrook, right? Shalom was shared with her, and she became Shalom giver. 
And that is the model of our church. So to truly end the plane or wrap it up, you can soon depart (laughs) to the terminal and head on home. RCC, let's seek the shalom of the people around us. We then understand this gospel shalom better that we have in Jesus. And to understand the shalom that our relationship with Christ has given us and is and has been giving to us and and he will always forever give to us as we seek, pray, and understand and wrestle, be and do, not as a checklist but an intertwined process to engage daily and for the rest of our lives. Amen. Let's pray. Worship team comes. Let's just take a moment. And whatever the Lord might be speaking to you, if there is anything through this uh, message, Lord, you have been reading, and I apologize for that. Let it be so. Well, let's come to the Lord. Think about the verses. If there's anything that I've been accurate about with these verses, um, to consider that uh, in your lives, where you're at, and with the people around you, at home, at work, and school.